SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, July 10, well, a legal expert, Associate Professor Hannah Magled from Curtin University Law School, will respond to Indigenous Australians' Minister Linda Barney's four points, priorities of the voice to Parliament. We'll also be joined by Emma Gallet, an academic, lawyer and columnist. Together, we'll explore the controversies surrounding the new Aboriginal cultural heritage laws that came into effect on July 1 in WA. Together, we see what the confusion is all about. Also on NITV Radio today, Christina Nu, one of Australia's veteran musical icons, shares the story of her remarkable journey with Living Black Scala Grant. Christina Nu also shares the story of how she's fostering the next generation of artists. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news on NITV Radio. Bertrand Tungandami Ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directly outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Bulletin, Yuendumu elders to launch a trauma response kit for First Nations families. The Prime Minister secures a $1 billion defence deal with Germany and calls for Scott Morrison to resign as the robot-debt Royal Commission fallout continues. Elders from the Uendumu community or in the Northern Territory have come together to launch a trauma response kit for First Nations families. It uses a storybook, games and cards to explain trauma and its impacts as a response to the intergenerational traumas which are, a daily, cha- which are daily challenges for many people living in remote communities. Senior World Prairie women from the Early Childhood Group have spent the past few years talking to their community and developing the Healing the Spirit Kit. Member of the group Ome Kalaga says the kit will benefit Indigenous families. So we can help her, you know, grow up our kids to be strong, not to see violence. We want you to move to be a peace place. Yeah, we're gonna grow up kids. We wanna take them hunting, teach them cultural way. The kit will be shared with other World Prairie communities through schools and clinics. 
Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney says the proposed Indigenous Voice to Parliament will be a two-way relationship key to solving long-running issues. As campaigning increases ahead of the referendum, Ms Burney has told the ABC's Insiders program the dynamic between government and the proposed body would be based on trust. The relationship that I want with The Voice is a two-way process, one of respect, uh, one of listening to fresh ideas about intractable problems. It's about making a practical difference to the shocking social justice outcomes for Aboriginal people. The comments follow an address by Ms Bunny at the National Press Club last week where she outlined that The Voice would have four main policy areas of health, education, jobs and housing. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has arrived in Berlin where he has secured a $1 billion defence deal with Germany. Under the agreement, Australia is set to provide more than 100 boxer heavy weapon carriers to Germany. The carriers are to be supplied by a Queensland-based military vehicle provider from 2025. Mr Albanese says it will be one of Australia's largest ever exports and create 1,000 new jobs. This will boost our sovereignty, this will increase our defence capability and boost our economy. This is a great outcome and it's the first outcome of quite a few that we have uh, ready to announce tomorrow with our friends here in Germany and I thank Chancellor Schultz for the very kind invitation to come here uh, to commemorate uh, these agreements. It comes ahead of the NATO summit in uh, Lithuania. Scott Morrison is facing fresh resignation calls based on his role in RoboDebt as uncovered by a Royal Commission into the Government Programme. The Royal Commission found former coalition ministers, including Mr Morrison, dismissed or ignored concerns about the legality of the scheme and nine newspapers is now reporting Liberal MP Bridget Archer, among others, is calling for him to step down. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten says the former Prime Minister should be embarrassed by the findings, but it is up to Mr Morrison to decide if he should quit Parliament. Nationals MP Barnaby Joyce has told the Seven Network he takes the same view. First of all, it doesn't, it just has a whiff of not being earnest about it. It's a decision that's best made by the person themselves as to what they want to do with their career, not for other people. Otherwise, you always get the inevitable. We, you know, we tell all the Labor Party members that they should leave politics. They tell us that we should all leave politics. You know, there'll be no one left in the place. So it's, that's a decision to be made. But if you're asking for contrition, uh, you don't have to ask me. Uh, the interviews I've done already, if people have been hurt, of course we are sorry, of course we learn and of course we move on. The Federal Minister for Communications is hailing a new national gambling register as a game changer. Problem gamblers will soon be able to sign up to a national self-exclusion register as part of uh, new betting reform measures. The register, known as BetStop, will be implemented by the federal government from August the 21st. It's a free service and will allow people to voluntarily exclude themselves from online betting companies. Michelle Rowland told the ABC people will be able to stop betting for anywhere between three months to a lifetime.
This is a game changer because it means that with one touch, an individual is able to exclude themselves from these forms of online gambling. The launch of the register next month follows a parliamentary report looking into online gambling reform handed down in June. The report recommended a ban on online betting advertising that would be phased out in over three years. The United States Permanent Representative to the, to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, says the alliance appreciates the support Australia has shown Ukraine. Prime Minister Antony Albanese has travelled to Europe for the annual summit in Lithuania, where he, New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, and the leaders of Japan and South Korea have been invited to share their views on regional and global security. The two-day summit, starting on Tuesday, will have significant focus on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and as well as further support the alliance is willing to provide the Ukrainians. U.S. NATO Ambassador Julian Smith, a former National Security Advisor to Joe Biden, told SBS News the alliance is pleased with the military assistance Australia has provided Ukraine. Australia now is one of the largest non-NATO contributors to Ukraine. So we leave it to each sovereign country to determine the ways in which they want to provide specific capabilities. But we certainly applaud everything that Australia has done to date. We hope more support will be forthcoming in the future. This comes after the federal government announced last month it will provide a $110 million assistance package to Ukraine. NATO has turned turned the Lithuanian capital Vilnius into a fortress defended by advanced weaponry ahead of a key summit taking place just 32 kilometers from Russian ally Belarus. The NATO summit is to be attended by United States President Joe Biden and other alliance leaders as well as non-alliance leaders like Prime Minister Antony Albanese and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky. 16 NATO allies have sent a total of about a thousand troops to safeguard the two-day summit. Many members are also providing advanced air defense systems the Baltic states lack. Lithuanian President Gitanas Nosauda says anything less than these measures would be irresponsible. These are a totally normal force. Leaders from 40 countries are arriving, including US President Joe Biden and other NATO allied leaders. It would be more than irresponsible to have the sky unprotected. But what is most important to me is that our people are protected after the leaders have left. So in this sense, we still have work to do. But I look forward optimistically. Back home, a survey of the Australian rental market says renters in Queensland, South Australia and New South Wales are experiencing the most rental pressure nationwide. New South Wales-based researcher Suburb Trends found Queensland is experiencing the highest strain with rental prices having risen on average by over 16% in the last year with average rises in South Australia and Western Australia close behind. Analysis looked at other data, including the percentage of advertised rentals, vacancy rates, and the average percentage of income paid towards rent to measure the overall pressure of renting. 
the Australian Capital Territory and Tasmania were found to have the highest average percentage of advertised rentals and the, uh, the ACT, the highest vacancy rate of any state or territory, suggesting there, are, there may be less rental pressure in Australia's uh, capital. A cold front is sweeping through large parts of Australia's southeast, making its way down to Tasmania. The Bureau of Meteorology has issued severe weather warnings for parts of Victoria, New South Wales, the ACT and Tasmania. Winds exceeding 90 km per hour are expected in broad parts of South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, the ACT and Tasmania. And to sports, Australian cricket captain Pat Cummins says there were a couple of key moments that led to their third test loss to England. England defeated the Australian team by three wickets. Mitchell Stark gave an impressive display in taking five wickets in 78 balls, dismissing Ben Stokes and John Bestow after, after lunch to swing momentum to the Australians. But a winning partnership from England's Harry Brook caught out for 75, and Chris Walks, who hit the winning runs, gave the Brits exactly what they needed. Cummins told Sky News, Sky Sports Cricket, there were some missed opportunities. Unfortunately, um, lost a couple of wickets, which which happened. So, um, you know, I thought to get up to 250 gave us something, you know, pretty competitive to bowl at, um, but wasn't quite enough. And now having a look at the weather around the country this Monday afternoon, Broome, sunny 28, Perth, partly cloudy 20, Adelaide, a shower 216, Melbourne, partly cloudy 16, Hobart, a shower 215, Albury, Wodonga, cloudy 11, Canberra, partly cloudy 13, Wollongong, sunny 19, Sydney, sunny 20, Newcastle, wind easing, sunny 20, Brisbane, sunny 22, Townsville, partly cloudy 25, Keynes, partly cloudy 27, Alice Springs, sunny day 19, Darwin, also sunny 33 degrees, and the Torres Tra- Strait Islands, a cloudy day ahead and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. or anytime online. Emma Gallet, an academic, lawyer and columnist, is joining us on NITV Radio to explore Western Australia's new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act that came into effect on July 1, triggering some mixed reactions with some pundits even pouring into outright scaremongering. Emma Gallet, First of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. And uh, before we look at uh, the reactions to the new laws, can you explain to us the fundamentals of uh, WA's cultural heritage laws, the ones that just came into effect? Yeah, so the new Cultural Heritage Act came into force on the 1st of July. So that was just last week. And what it does is it replaces the old and outdated 1972 Cultural Heritage Act And the reason they needed to amend and replace the Act was because the old Act didn't provide traditional owners with adequate procedural fairness in decision-making on their land. So procedural fairness means having, um, being able to have opportunity to have input and show evidence um, to make a decision. So what the new Act does is it aims to better protect Australia's 60,000 years of Aboriginal heritage 
the new law wasn't just created really quickly. In fact, it was developed over five years and involved extensive consultation with a variety of stakeholders over WA. It really aims to fairly balance the interests of different land users and stakeholders, which does include Indigenous people. And it includes stronger protections for significant sites and broader definitions of what Aboriginal cultural heritage is. So this is really important. Um, and it also includes a pro positive duty to exercise due diligence. So what that means is you need to actively avoid harm to Aboriginal heritage. And if you don't, there are in fact stronger penalties for breaking the law, which is really important because um, we need to protect our Aboriginal heritage. The new law also considers something called cultural landscapes, which is um, great because it's not just individual cultural sites and it includes both tangible and intangible cultural heritage. It means we can protect that, which is very, very um, significant for Aboriginal people and a big improvement from the last 1972 Cultural Heritage Act. Yeah, you said it uh, tries to address the concerns of many stakeholders, but is it a good law? I think it is. It's a big improvement from the last Act. The aim of it is to really to better reflect aspirations of Aboriginal people into government and business decisions. Um, but un because unfortunately the views of Indigenous people haven't been given equal weight in WA before and unfortunately because of that we've had incidents um, in the past where Aboriginal heritage has been legally destroyed but it may not reflect what the community and Indigenous aspirations are for that site. So it is an improvement on the old law, but there are still some things that um, could have been done to improve it, and that includes avenues for protecting um, sites from cumulative effects as well. And one thing I would have liked to see as well um, is a federal legislation, but I can talk to you a bit more about that a bit later. Yeah, we'll uh, definitely continue this conversation. But uh, coming back to the stakeholders, uh, and one shire in particular, the shire of uh, Carnarvon, says that the new law may trigger community disputes about uh, who is the appropriate traditional owner or knowledge-holding group for a particular area of land. And uh, yeah, this is an issue that uh, seems to not have been uh, adequately addressed in, by the new law. This has been an ongoing issue. It's something that's not new. So I think that a lot of stakeholders that might have had this issue in the past, they're raising it again and it's rearing its head. But it's always been an issue for some stakeholder groups um, in identifying who the, the Indigenous knowledge holders are. And it's up to them as well to do their due diligence and make sure that they consult with the right groups as well. I hope that the new law is able to um, support this and make sure that traditional owners are consulted in the adequate and correct way to protect their Aboriginal heritage. Some believe the law has been a little bit rushed. Uh, why now? The reason for it now is because we had really outdated laws previously. We had the Aboriginal Heritage Act in 1972. It was created and it failed to protect significant sites and a lot of our sites were legally destroyed I'm not saying that might not happen with the new Act, but what the new Act does is it allows for more procedural fairness so that decisions made are more representative of state bodies. 
what the new Act does is to try and mitigate some of those failings of the past law and um, it demonstrates the need for legal reform from the past. So that's what's occurred now. We have new laws which can try and prevent disasters happening in the past. Yeah, I've been uh, sifting through the comments. Uh, uh, there are some that say that uh, while the new law may be a step in the right di- direction, it actually does not go far enough from an Indigenous perspective, uh, especially for this is, comes from uh, professionals who look at it and uh, work in uh, the Indigenous uh, community. Yeah, and I think that it would have been nice to see uh, a right of appeal in there as well for decisions for Aboriginal people. But one thing that is called for is, for example, the First Nations Heritage Protection Alliance. They've called for overarching federal legislation to ensure that Aboriginal self-determination and consent rights on cultural heritage are codified into Commonwealth law. And another important point to note as well is that all states have different cultural heritage laws. Currently, there's no national overarching cultural heritage laws. So what is being asked is really important because what different law in different states and territories means is that there's different levels of protection or participation of traditional owner groups in the management of their cultural heritage. So it would be nice to really make sure that it's protected at the same level across the country and increase the protection of it as well so that we can start protecting Aboriginal heritage in the same way that non-Indigenous heritage is protected in both the state and in the country. So I really support the call for federal cultural heritage legislation in the future. Yeah, you kind of touched on uh, what was going to be my next question, uh, is uh, whether this law is unique to WA or other states have their own uh, legislations. But uh, can you maybe tell us one of the key uh, benefits of uh, the uh, WA law compared to other what's applicable in other states and uh, some of the weaknesses? I would like to say that the new law in Western Australia is just a lot better than our previous Cultural Heritage Act in terms of procedural fairness, as I mentioned earlier. And it's important and it's great. And another good um, part of it is we now have um, local Aboriginal advisory, cultural heritage advisory services, which will be established as well. So I really do like that. But one thing we need to make sure of is that those services are resourced adequately and that They have the right people that are able to run them as well and they're also funded in the right way. If you just compare that with non-Indigenous heritage groups that are funded, you can see that a lot of those... um, I just like to see that Aboriginal heritage be recognised in the same way. Yeah, it comes a little bit too late for some uh, really interesting and very, not just interesting, actually culturally significant sites uh, that have been destroyed. Yeah, I would have really liked to see stronger legal protections in the past. And it does come really late, but at the end of the day, the law has changed and there's so much room for law reform in the state and in the country. And I hope that we can continue to make sure that laws are fair, equitable and provide justice for First Nations people, especially when it's concerning decisions over their land and waterways and air. Emma Garrett, thank you very much for joining us on NITV Radio to further explain to us uh, the reach and implications of the new WA uh, cultural heritage uh, laws. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're with NITV Radio. 
Now time for a break and uh, when we come back a story shared uh, with us by uh, Living Black NITV's Living Black program with uh, Christina Nu in conversation with uh, Living Black host Carla Grant. Uh, stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. Now, Christina Nu is one of Australia's veteran musical icons. She performed at the 2000 Olympic Games at Uluru for NITV's 10th anniversary, and she also hosts weekend evenings on ABC Radio. Recently, Christine shared the story of her remarkable journey with Living Black's Color Grant. Christine Arnu is one of our most well-known singers, having performed internationally and across the nation, including at the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. But how did this side by Mabiorg woman from the Torres Strait make it to stardom? It's a captivating story. Hi, I'm Christine Anu, and my mob is Savoy Island, Sui, Baidam, and Samu. I am a Torres Strait Islander woman born in Cairns. Most Torres Strait Islanders, um, if, if there's I don't know, for some reason, no beds left on Thursday Island Hospital. You go down to Cairns Base Hospital. I think I've lived down south longer than I've lived in the far north. And you know what? Get back up to the far north and I've got to acclimatise all over again. It's too hot. Uh, but I loved it. The tropics, it's always about the colour, the, the fruit, mangoes. Some of the happiest memories from my childhood are the carefree. We didn't have traditional uh, play equipment that kids you know grow up with um, in the urban cities and so we just had we had just just the ocean with the backyard and the hills and the bush all you know out all day that's what mum and aunties all insisted get out of the house go and play and then we'd come back when the sun goes down and my mum used to say just like birds do they return to their nest when the sun goes down and that's that's a that's what I remember it was like you know the fondest memories climbing trees not being able to get back down again that's a bit scary but um swimming swimming and fishing and um and just lots of family lots of family I do remember the first time I ever wanted to perform I would have had to have been seven years old and that was because on a Sunday uh, evening, the family would sit around and we'd watch Young Talent Time. This is when we were still in Brisbane before we moved up north into the Torres Strait. And um, little Tina Arena just joined um, the Young, Young Talent Time team. And um, she was just amazing. And I think that was the moment that I thought, you know, I think I want to perform as well. That was the moment that I think set the tone for how I would go about my life, trying to obtain a career that would be singing to people, making music and just sharing the love of music and bringing everybody together. How did a young Torres Strait Islander woman uh, 
get voted off the island uh, and, and make her, her way all the way down to Sydney. See, um, I think, one, you, you're so remote and you, all you dream about every day is finding a way to be in places where other children would have more opportunity or are having more opportunity than you are on an island that's so remote, in a, in a community that's so far away that you might be off everyone's radar. So you're constantly thinking about how that would happen and when that would happen. And that's exactly what happens when you go to boarding school. From one stepping stone comes another one and then onto another one and then onto, onto another one. You meet the right teachers. Educators can be and play some of the most, one of the most important roles in your life and that is guiding you and pointing you in a direction um, that might lead you to something bigger and better. I was very fortunate to be surrounded by um, teachers and educators who really had, had our, our, you know, because it was all of us ATSI kids, had our, um, you know, future um, uh, at heart, you know. So I was, I was glad to be introduced to people who pointed me in the right direction. And then I ended up in, in Sydney uh, because of those connections and, and still to this day very grateful for it. I studied dance at NASDA um, and I guess from that time that I was seven and I knew that's what I wanted to do, I wanted to be a performer. My knowledge was that um, it's not what you know, it's who you know in the business and I just did not know, well my parents certainly didn't and I had a long way to come flying from, you know, remote island community all the way down to the city and how would I, how would I connect the dots from boarding school to that next stage. Enter Troy Doyle, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander li liaison officer. He's a career advisor. He gets an application out when he says that, um, what is it that you want to do? I said, I want to be in the performing arts. I want to, I want to sing. I want to sing, dance, whatever, whatever that is. And he pointed out Naysda. He said, you know, I think it might be for you. You're, you're 17 and you can absolutely, you know, stick this out. It's a five-year course. I'm like, whoa. The main thing that attracted me was I'd learn all of these styles of um, uh, modern and contemporary dance, even folk, but there was a big focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultural dances and performances. Very, very attractive, very, very appealing. And I felt it was really important in shaping that performer that I was sort of visualised I was going to become one day and I stuck it out and it's and that's my message to all young people out there finish what you start there you it might turn dull or it might for whatever reason become disheartening but it's a means to an end you should always stick it out take one day at a time one day at a time one foot in the other and you'll get to your goals but stick it out and good things will come at the end of it I promise you it happened for me how did my collaboration come about with uh, Neil Murray and the Rainmakers? Uh, well, uh, during my fifth and final year at NASDA, we were doing our annual May workshop, and that sort of is when the school opens up the doors to the public, um, so it's not just the people who prescribe to the school, subscribe to the school, but also uh, to anybody who they want to bring along, friends of NASDA, basically. And uh, Neil was apparently invited along as a friend of NASDA. 
and we were doing the cultural dances of Yam Island at the workshop. Neil was there and he he's really impressed and he said, who's the little girl with the, with the big voice? And, you know, um, look, I'm, I'm looking for a female um, backing singer. We're just a bunch of blokes and we don't really sing that great. Um, ask her if she wants to come and try out. So we sat at his home in Annandale on his porch for two weeks learning um, all of the Neil Murray repertoire, including my island home. And uh, he said, great, you're ready. So my first gig... Uh, in May, uh, June, was at the Sylvania Water Hotel in Sydney. And one gig turned into two, three, four, and eight months later I'm graduating and I've met all of Neil's record company associates who have secretly come and watched me do my annual performance at the Belvoir Street Theatre. And Mushroom Records whips me up and um, I sign with Mushroom Records. Join Bangara the next year, do a gig with Yothi Yindi, um, and you know things just picked up on momentum. And before you know it, it was getting away from me. The, all of these wonderful opportunities were happening. Doing gigs, uh, being around and associated with people in the music industry was my rock school because I didn't have any formal music training. Um, I was learning everything on the fly, meaning every time I turned up to a gig, I'd be in a room in a small backstage area of a pub with all just men and being the only female, listening to male banter, trying to work out how I can find my own space as, as a young woman, a young black woman in this environment that I really felt like a fish out of water in. So I had to learn, learn, you know, the paces, uh, uh, work out how and where and why I fit in. So I worked very, very, very hard. Um, I, I paid a lot of t attention with my ears because obviously I'm learning, learning the music by ear, um, listening to all of the conversations, really listening hard at, at how people are conducting themselves. I, I affectionately uh, termed it as, a, as my rock school. Sometimes I'm still going through it because this next generation that's coming through, I'm the old girl now and um, they're asking me the questions and I'm still like, no, I don't know, I'm still learning myself. And my island home my island home, my island home is waiting for me. I knew from back in the Rainmaker days when Neil originally said, Christine, you should sing the song. It needs a fresh context. It, re it needs a fresh perspective. It needs a fresh voice um, and, a, and a, a new life of its own. And songs do that, you know, songs really have a life of their own after you've performed it. And when I started performing it in the pub, I, I just was really scared that people would go, that's not your song, that's the rumpy song and you've got no right singing it and you're ruining it. You know, those were my fears. I was really, really scared. So I didn't sing it for a long time. I sang song, songs of uh, Neil's that were other songs that people didn't know that well, like Ocean of Regret. And then slowly but surely, surely, I inched my way into um, my island home. Michael Godinsky said, brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. This is, this is the album. And it became the cornerstone song that informed the direction of the entire album, at which point the culmination of my five years of study 
was making sense. It was all going to be my, my cultural studies and my passion for my culture and wanting to share that with them, um, sharing my language. All of that would be what I could just inject into this album. It was, it was, it was there. It was ready-made. I just didn't know it. And that was uh, Christina No in conversation with uh, Living Black's uh, Carla Grant. Now, uh, this uh, version of uh, Living Black has been edited for radio by NITV Radio's Sharka Pekova. And you can watch the, fil- the full episode on SBS uh, On Demand. Let's now have a listen to the track that uh, really marked uh, the beginning. Actually, they, they just catapulted uh, Christina No on uh, the musical scene. And uh, that's all for NITV Radio this Monday afternoon. Uh, the program will be back on Wednesday and it will be brought to you by uh, Loana Grant. I'm Bertrand Tungandabe, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Yeah,